A lot of times when you're about to listen to a sermon, you're thinking, will this say anything to my life? But since the Christian life is Jesus Christ and he is the life in us, the more we look at him and learn about him and love him, the more that affects our faith and affects our attitudes. And that has to do with everything in our Christian lives, how we parent, how we act as a spouse, how we work, how we pray. Keeping your eyes focused on Jesus is one of the most beneficial and practical things. And we're going to return to Peter's sermon that he was giving on the day of Pentecost. I know it's been a few weeks. Um, This is the church's first sermon, and it was given and delivered to the Jews in Jerusalem, all those Jews that were gathered from all over the diaspora. It's in Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin by reading it. We'll start in verse 14 and go through 36. Acts 2, 14 through 36. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we'll stop there. Last time that we were in Acts, we... um, talked about the central importance of 
preaching in the way that God works and the way that God moves and accomplishes his purposes. We noted that uh, there are a number of exceptional characteristics to this preaching that Peter did, this sermon. Peter, if you look back, commences his sermon with the fitting introduction. They had just heard all of these Galileans, untaught Galileans, speaking in a myriad of different languages throughout the world, and they were praising God in these languages they couldn't possibly have learned. They're beholding a miracle right in front of them. They're amazed. They're astonished. They're asking, what does it mean? And so he uses that as the launching point for his sermon. That's what has their attention, and that's where he began. But the bulk of the sermon, all that's just intro. The bulk of the sermon, the thing that is on Peter's heart and that the Holy Spirit moves this first sermon to be on, the topic to think about is Jesus Christ. Really, if you think about it, this whole, this whole passage, this whole sermon is about Jesus Christ. He wants all of them to know Jesus the Nazarene is the Messiah. Jesus, who was here and did these miracles and died and was risen from the dead, he is your long-awaited Messiah. They've been waiting hundreds of years for a Messiah. They've been waiting over a 1,000 years for a Messiah. They've been waiting 2,000 years, really, uh, the Jews for a Messiah. And he came, and that's what he's telling them. It's really an, an incredible moment in history. All of these Jews coming out of their homes right there in the middle of Jerusalem, filling the streets or wherever they were in the Temple Mount. We're not exactly sure where they are, but they're all just riveted on this. And Peter takes his stand with the 11 and he preaches, and he's giving the message of all of the 12 apostles. And he is, you know, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's the ambassador. He's the one speaking on behalf of Christ. And the whole sermon is about Jesus, and it is about his credentials for being the Messiah. It's all focused on him. It's amazing. And and really, Peter follows a chronological order, so it's easy to follow his sermon. He starts with Jesus' life. He goes to his death, talks about his resurrection, and then his exaltation and even the pouring out of the Spirit at the end. Really, if you think about it, because the Jews had rejected Jesus, this is an evangelistic sermon. It's a sermon that is trying to bring them to the point where they repent and believe and are saved. And you'll see that indeed is the outcome. If you look down at verse 41, it'll be a while before we get there. But thousands repent of their sin and believe in Jesus as their Messiah, join the church. Sermon also is delivered with unashamed boldness. It rings with brilliant clarity about Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no hedging in the sermon. There's no like, well, we'll try to, we'll try to talk to these seekers in a way that will help them, you know, come to understand some religious things. No, it's very bold. It's in their face. It demands that they repent of a terrible, terrible crime they've committed. It's just unashamed. And that's what we need to be as Christians, just his posture. It just breathes encouragement into me. I mean, there's no, there's no like, well, maybe we're like a Christian and we get along with everybody. He doesn't get along with anybody there. He's, he's boldly telling them, y'all killed your, your king. There's no way to sugarcoat that. And then I think it's also got a lot of theology in it. There's a lot of Christology here and, and you know, the doctrine about Christ and what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah. So it relates to prophecy, and we talked about the importance of preaching, but all good preaching is based on prophecy, and prophecy is the foundation for good preaching. And so you see that here too. The preeminence of preaching, the primacy of prophecy, and all of that we talked about last time. 
Now, last time we also mentioned that Peter's sermon has three main parts. There's the introduction in verses 14 to 21. We covered that last time. If you missed that uh, in our new website that we have, you can go there and listen to that. The second part, the bulk of it, and I don't know how long we'll be on it because it's so glorious, is verses 22 to 36, and that is this this main body of the sermon, this witness about Jesus Christ. You see here, really, what were the apostles going around telling everybody? You kind of have the nutshell right here. This is it. And then there's a closing appeal. There's a closing appeal in verses 37 to 41. That's how the sermon ends. Now, today and next time and maybe longer, we're going to be on this witness about Jesus Christ. So just look at verses 22 to 36. Focus on them. Whole section, as I said, is about Jesus. Here, our outline is going to be just following the life of Jesus. First, his public ministry. You might call that his life. And then it goes to his death. We've got to talk about his death, why that happened, and then his resurrection, what that means, and then on to his ascension. In other words, if there's a message anyone that God wants anyone to get, Jew or Gentile, it is focus on this person, Jesus, and think about his life, think about his death, think about his resurrection, think about his ascension, put it all together, and you'll get what God is saying to the entire world today. It's a very important message, and it's being declared right here from the beginning. So... Um, We're going to use that as our track to run on. He's going to prove Jesus is God's Messiah. He's Lord over all, not just the Jews. And then um, I'm hoping as we rehearse these truths, I'm not sure you'll learn anything new. I hope you will. But if you don't learn anything new, take these truths that are so precious to you and rejoice in them and let them be things you think about. We start with Jesus's public ministry, his life. Look at verse 22, if you would. Men of Israel. So he's addressing the men primarily, notice. Men of Israel, listen to these words. You know, once in a while we say as preachers, listen up, pay attention, get your mind back. That's what he's doing here. He's arresting their attention. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Interesting. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now, there's so much there. We've got to stop right there. Peter's preaching, described as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about, is logic on fire. We're not supposed to preach these truths and not have passion. We're also not supposed to have passion and not have truth. It is logic and it is truth and it is doctrine, but it's lit on fire as well. And that's what preaching is. It's logic on fire. That's what Peter is doing here. And it's aimed at a very large crowd of Jews. And it's spoken with this unbelievable boldness. Why was he so bold? You say, well, that's kind of the way Peter was. No, Peter got afraid. You say it's because the Holy Spirit came. Yes, but Peter also knew certain things, and he's telling us those things here. First, he says, Jesus the Nazarene was a man attested to you guys that I'm preaching to by God with miracles. In other words, behind my sermon, I have a lot of confidence preaching to you because I know God has already performed lots of miracles. And you saw the miracles and you know about here. And I can boldly tell you about Jesus because you know in your conscience what I'm telling you is true. And so he had that boldness. But there's a second reason he was bold. And that is that he, he knew that the Jews of Jerusalem were very aware of these miracles. Many of the miracles were done right in Jerusalem or roundabout in Judea. Many of them they had heard about to the north in Galilee as he had done miracles around the Sea of Galilee or in Nazareth or in other places. He did these miracles. They saw and heard these miracles. They were the kind they could investigate, and Peter, Peter knew that. 
He knew that God had set him up with the coming of the Holy Spirit and all of this speaking in other languages, a real miracle. And then all the miracles that Jesus had done, Peter was set up perfectly with an an audience that knew that what he was saying was true. And it gave him boldness. They knew all about Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, my goodness. That had almost been the topic that everybody was talking about in all of Israel. Jesus, the prophet, is he the Messiah? And there was so much debate about him. He was the buzz. He was the talk of the, of the town and really of the whole country. That's interesting. He gives them the name, the Nazarene, right? Jesus, the Nazarene, or you read about Jesus of Nazareth. That was his official designation within Israeli society. When they wanted to understand who he was, that's how they understood who he was. We have last names, right? John Smith. But they had Jesus of Nazareth, of the city where he came from. Where did he hail from? Where was his upbringing? What was his father's name? That's kind of what they did in order to identify them. And that's how Jesus was understood. In John 18 and verse 5, the Jews who came to arrest Jesus in the garden, you know what they said? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And that's how they designated him. That's how he was known. In John 19, 19, Pilate put this very name above Jesus' head on the cross. It said, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. He did it to mock him. But it was his name. This is Jesus the Nazarene. All of this was to show what? That his hometown was Nazareth. Why? Because Nazareth was not an impressive place. Nazareth was a country bumpkin kind of place. It was nothing to the north. It wasn't like the great city of Jerusalem and all of the places that Jews that were of established kind of origin were, were from. No, they were... This was a far-off place. This was an unimpressive location. But Peter says, Jesus the Nazarene was attested to you by God. It's a humble origin of Jesus, but that did not matter because God took him in that place, put him front and center in the nation of Israel, and then God gave his testimony that this is the Messiah. And how did he do it? He gave Jesus miracles and gave Jesus signs and gave Jesus wonders. God attested Christ. In other words, the whole country, the whole society had the proof, had the evidence that he was the Messiah because God attested to him. This is not men attesting. This was not men in a court of law. This was God bearing his testimony that this man walking around was the Messiah. John 5, 36, Jesus knew that they were having a tough time believing in him. But he said, the witness which I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works, he's talking about his his miracles, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. See, you know, you see me doing these miracles, you can't help but know. How could you miss it? Christ's miracles exhibited and confirmed his Messiahship to the Jews. Unlike John the Baptist, who never claimed to be the Messiah and he did not perform miracles. Do you know that? John the Baptist did not perform miracles. And he never claimed that he was able to do. He just stood there and he said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. By the way, side note, Buddha didn't do miracles. Muhammad didn't do miracles. Mary didn't do miracles. Confucius didn't do miracles. Joseph Smith didn't do miracles. Jesus Christ did miracles. Why? Because Jesus is God's man. That's who he is. The entire world needs to know it, and the entire world needs to know it because there's a testimony in this book that says he was a man that just blitzed Israel with miracles. You know, the Jews wanted signs. They like signs. People today would like signs too. They want miracles. You know, Paul said the Jews ask for signs. Come on, give me a sign. Give me some proof. 
Greeks searched for wisdom. Ah, they tried to think of wisdom, you know, like an ass. But the Jews, they wanted a sign. Give me a sign. What sign do you do? No sign, I'm not believing in you, you know? That's how the Jews were. Have to have a sign. So God gave them signs. Gave them a lot of signs. Couldn't miss it, really. Boatloads of signs. Notice Peter uses three words for these signs here. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles. Would you like to see a miracle? Miracles is the word dunamis. It's a word that has to do with a display of power. We get our word dynamite from it, but it doesn't mean dynamite. It just means that there's a power at work there. People would see there's power there. That's not natural. That's power that is at work. That's a miracle. And then the word wonders, teron. It's a word that points to the marveling that people did when they watched the mighty act. So God does dunamis, power, and then the people would watch it and they go, wow, that's Tehran. It's a wonder. And then he uses the word signs, samion. That shows that the, the, mighty, the mighty power that was at work was kind of like a message. It was supposed to say something. It was to tell them something. You see, this, you see this miracle, now figure out what's going on here. You saw the miracle, now what does that mean? Put, put it together. Come on, use your brain and think. That's what it was. They weren't just like, uh, you know, divine whims, you know, just pointing here and, and a miracle happened or zapping there and a miracle happened. They were, they were thought through. There was something that Jesus did so that you would look at him and you would see the power. You know, well, that's got to be God. Now, what is God saying by that miracle? It's a sign. A sign points to something. It says, this is the truth. Figure it out. All three of these realities can be seen in one of Jesus' greatest miracles, and that is raising Lazarus from the dead, recorded in John chapter 11. Do you remember that amazing miracle? What a a miracle. Remember Jesus delayed? He didn't come for four days because he wanted to make sure Lazarus was dead, dead, you know, that everyone knew he was dead, that he was dead and gone kind of dead, not like close to dead, but been dead for four days kind of dead. That kind of dead, so that when he raised him from the dead, everybody knew he was raised from the dead and not to sleep, right? Put behind, a, put behind the stone. There he is. He's dead. Jesus took his time. You know, he just kind of meandered there. And Mary and Martha like, oh, Martha was like, if you'd been here, my brother would have lived. Basically, Jesus tells her to calm down. Everything's going to be fine. What happened? Well, there was dunamis, right? How do you get a dead man up to live again? There's got to be an injection of power. That's dunamis. I mean, he was truly dead. He wasn't resuscitated after drowning. He was dead, brain dead. And then there was power. Then the people who saw it outside of the tomb, they see this guy come out. He's wrapped around, you know. Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. And what are the people doing? Like, oh, my goodness. You can just see him kind of unwrapping. Is that you, Lazarus? Is that really you? Oh, there he is. His neighbor, their brother, they knew him. And so they were filled with wonder. I imagine some people screamed. I imagine some people were shocked. And then... Samion, the sign. What does all that mean? Exactly what Jesus had finished telling Martha right before he raised him from the dead. He said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this? And Martha said, yes, I believe. But she didn't really know what she was saying, right? And then he raises someone from the dead, and everyone's supposed to be like, he, he has life inside of him. He can just give life. My goodness, who is he? This is God. Only God can give life, you see. And so it's amazing. This is all that. By the way, if you go to any of Jesus' miracles, you could see that there's power, then there's a reaction, there's wonder, and then there's a sign. What does that mean? He opens the eyes of the blind. What does that mean? He can open your spiritual eyes. You can't see right now, but God can help you to understand spiritual things. There it is. Every single one of them 
meant something. Remember in the boat? You know, he stands up, he rebukes the winds and the waves, and the winds and the waves stop. That'd be a wonderful thing to have. Go outside and rebuke the cold, right? Minus, minus two this morning in Lisbon, Maryland. Minus two. You know, I could stand out there. You know, if, if you were God in human flesh, you could stand up and say 50 degrees. That's what I want. 70 degrees. I want it nice. Boom, everything obeys you. That's what Jesus was. Wind and waves, stop. And remember the disciples in the boat, they're like, who is this? Who is this? Who is this that he can command the winds and the waves? Yeah, now you got it going. Now you're starting to think it through. This is not a normal guy. The title prophet's not good enough for him, you see. He's more than that. By the way, Jesus gave this kind of power to the apostles. He rested this power on the apostles. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 that God testified with the apostles by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to God's own will. You know why the people knew that they were the apostles and not somebody else? Because all the other Christians or most of the other Christians, they didn't do these signs. The apostles, the ambassadors of Jesus did do those signs. Someone stands up today and say, I could do all those miracles. You're not an apostle of Jesus. You can't do that. You weren't chosen. Paul defended this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He he wrote, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There they are again, signs and wonders and miracles. The whole point of that is that very few Christians got to do that. Otherwise, everyone would be authenticated as an apostle. But God was authenticating them as the true spokespersons of Jesus Christ. The presence of all three of these proved God was at work in a special way. When people say that there are miracles here and there are miracles there, and you study them and you find them out to be not true, they're false, they're phony, that's because this was very, very special. This was God and the finger of God working. You know, sometimes they say a uh, Category 5 tornado is the finger of God. No, it's not. Here was the finger of God. Category 5 tornadoes happen. This doesn't happen. This is the finger of God. This is the power of God. This was to convince the most skeptical group of people that demanded signs that these are the signs. What else, do you wait? what else are you waiting for, you know? The very finger of God at work. People see it. They know that's, that's God. How many miracles did Jesus do? You know, nobody knows. Nobody knows. There's, as far as the story and account, there's 40 of them that are written, about 40 of them that are written uh, in the four Gospels. But then you read certain verses that say, and they brought to him all those that were sick, and he healed all of them. How many was that? Nobody knows. This could be hundreds. This could have been thousands of miracles that he did. He controlled nature. He healed all sicknesses instantly. He raised the dead. He made the lame to walk. He walked on water, literally, not like on ice, <laughs> you know, on a pond. This was a miracle. He touched the eyes of the blind, and they saw. Who does that? I love the words of John 7, 31. But many of the crowd believed in Jesus, and they were saying, when the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? You can see them kind of debating it, right? Who's going to do more signs than this guy? Come on. How many has he done? How come you're not believing in him yet? Well, there are many modern people that are skeptical of miracles. They rule out miracles before even investigating them. That's not fair. That's not objective. That's not scientific. You know, there are people that are searching, searching for the historical Jesus. Who is the real historical Jesus? That always makes me laugh. There's four gospel accounts that were eyewitness accounts. They tell us who the real historical Jesus was, and they say, yeah, but we know that miracles don't happen. 
And so since miracles don't happen, this must all be legend and myth, and it was just kind of embellished. So let's try to find who the real historical Jesus was. Let's strip away all the miracles from his life and see what's left. It's kind of like stripping away all the sugar from cotton candy, see what's left. And there's not a lot left there. You know, there's not a lot left. His whole life, his, his, his conception was miraculous. He like, he, without wings, he stood on, on the planet and he went up to heaven at the end of his life. And in between, there's a lot of miracles. He didn't get that. Something's wrong. Obviously, the real historical Jesus was a miracle working Jesus. That's the whole point. His miracles were recorded right away. They were done and talked about right after his death. There's no time for a a, a legend to develop. When Peter was preaching this, this was only 50 days after the Passover and Jesus' crucifixion. Where's the time for mythology to develop in 50 days, for goodness sake? Even the most ardent skeptics of our day agree that the letter of 1 Corinthians written by Paul was written only 20 years after the death of Jesus. And it documents the amazing miracle of the resurrection of Jesus and says that many of the eyewitnesses that saw the resurrection of Jesus were still living in Palestine. You could travel there and consult them and ask. Attempting to strip all the miraculous away from Jesus' life to discover what would be left is not a search for the real historical Jesus. It's an obvious attempt to make a Jesus the way they want him to be. And it's not historical. It's not scientific. Please don't be fooled by that. There's no method there that anybody can follow. It's circular reasoning to assume at the very beginning miracles can't happen and then pronounce after a so-called investigation, hey, there are no miracles that happen. Surprise! What other outcome would you expect from self-styled scientists? There are a lot of people that claim to be in academia and that they claim to be in touch with facts and all the rest. Don't let them fool you. They don't have any facts. They're not dealing with facts. They're dealing with assumptions. They're dealing with their philosophy they bring. There is no supernatural. Therefore, anyone in history that said there was a supernatural must be mythological. That's not an investigation. That's prejudice. And you shouldn't think that way. Listen, if Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the very first verse of the Bible, if that verse is true, in the beginning, God spoke into creation everything that we see, I would say that's a pretty grand display of the miraculous. Would you agree? If he could do that, if he could just speak and put the stars there, what's the big deal about multiplying loaves? If the first verse of the Bible is true, there is a God And there are miracles. By the way, no one has given an explanation how this universe could get here without God. And any talk about a big bang describing something, it doesn't explain anything. It explains nothing. It's all just smoke and mirrors. It's only fools that believe nature created nature. What does that even mean? From an historical perspective, if you investigate it with an honest heart, you see that the eyewitness testimony of the apostles is consistent. History testifies to their united, informed, particular, and detailed, and genuine witness. And not just the apostles, the Jews who didn't believe in Christ were aware he was a miracle-working guy. They, They were not, as Peter says here in the sermon, they were not able to say, Oh my, what a terrible mistake we made. We accidentally killed the Messiah. We didn't know. We didn't know. Peter says, just as you yourselves know. They'd seen the proof, and they still rejected Messiah. Even Jesus' most bitter enemies never even hinted at Christ's miracles not being true. 
the best explanation they could come up with in order to keep their status before the others and act like they really knew what was going on is, okay, okay, he casts out the demons, but he does that by the power of Satan. And Jesus stepped forward and said, so if Satan casts out Satan, how's he going to keep his kingdom? How ludicrous is that? Satan's casting out Satan. No, they all knew that Jesus did genuine miracles. All of them knew that. After raising Lazarus from the dead, do you know what the unbelieving Jews said in John 11? Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done, raising a man from the dead. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. There it is. And were saying, what are we doing? (laughs) For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see what their concern was? For the selfish concern, no matter, of, uh, no matter of evidence will be sufficient for any unbeliever. This is why they rejected Jesus. The signs were real. They weren't tricks. Tricks don't lead anyone to God. If someone gets led to God because of a trick, once they find out the trick, the whole gig is over, right? And you're like, forget it. I'm not following this guy anymore. No, these were miracles. These were to lead them to God. They were signs. But what they did is they exposed the evil of that generation more. Jesus once pleaded with the Jews in John 10, If I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. It's if you're looking at me and you say, ah, what good comes out of Nazareth? What could this guy looks around 30 years of age? He doesn't look any different than anybody else. I can't believe in him. Jesus said, okay, if you're having trouble with that, I'll be patient with you. Look at the miracles. And they did. And they said, ah, he does it by Satan. What blindness, what hardness of heart. So they were guilty. In fact, Jesus made this point in John 15, verses 24 and 25. He said to the disciples, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, notice he knew, right? They would not have guilt. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. There is no rational basis for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And that is the truth that Peter is driving home in this most impressive sermon. Look how Peter indicts them for this hatred without a cause at the end of verse 22. Just as you yourselves know. I wish I had heard how he said that exactly. I wonder how his eyes looked at when he looked at them. Just as you yourselves know. You saw him feed the 5,000 with almost nothing. You heard him casting out demons. You saw him giving sight back to the blind. You heard how he stopped the windstorm with a word. Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you get it? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, on the ruling council of the Jews, one of the the big 70, even conceded this in John 3, 2. He came to him by night, remember? Remember what he said? Teacher, we know that you have come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Bingo, Nicodemus, that's the whole point. The man born blind in John 9 was smarter than all of his teachers. He knew how to put two plus two together and not let anyone else say that equals five. 
He said, no, 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 it equals four. What do I mean? He told the Jewish authorities, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where Jesus is from, and yet he opened my eyes. I love that guy. Sometimes you need to stick with your common sense and your logic and not listen to everybody in academia. Because if if they're forcing themselves to not believe something because they don't want to, they're not academic. And I don't care how many credentials they have behind their name. If education leads you to deny the obvious, your education isn't worth much. Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man attested to you by God, just as you yourselves know. What did you do to him? What did you do to him? And this is where Peter's preaching is going to begin to hurt a little. And that's the second stage here, and that's the death of Jesus. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. This man, still talking about Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. And even worse, by the hands of godless men and put him to See, Peter's kind of like a, a lawyer in a courtroom, and he's building a case against the Jews. He's building an indictment. By the way, beloved, sometimes sermons are meant to hurt. Sometimes they're supposed to make people feel guilty because there is guilt before God, and these Jews were guilty. We're not always supposed to accentuate the positive. Sometimes we're supposed to point out where we err. First, Peter said, I'm going to prove to you Jesus' Messiahship. Remember all of the supernatural wonders that he did, a public life of miracle working, clearly a man sent from God. But this was the question the Jews had. Okay, okay, I saw the miracles and everything, but wait a minute. You're saying he's the Messiah. You're saying he's the son of David. You're saying he's the king who's going to rule. How come he died on a cross? That's where they were. They could not come across the finish line to put their faith in Christ because they stumbled on the stumbling block of the cross. A king, the son of David, not triumphant. David won his wars. Solomon reigned over a great kingdom. The son of David should be triumphant. Jesus was crucified on a cross like a common criminal outside the walls of Jerusalem, and that's kind of where it ended. How could he be the Messiah? Peter knows that is an objection by the Jews. He knows. He's probably even heard it. This is exactly the objection that the Jewish leaders hurled at Jesus when he hung on the cross in Luke 23, 35. What did they say to him as he hung up there? He saved others. Let him come down from the cross so that we can believe in him now. Can he save himself? And then when he didn't and he died and he breathed his last, they were like, So if Jesus was the chosen one of God, why did he die? Well, Peter provides the answer. Jesus was delivered up to die. Jesus went to the cross, listen, due to a predetermined plan of God. Predetermined. In Greek, that means to mark out the boundaries ahead of time. So it means to determine something in advance. Before it happens, it's determined, it's marked out, it's, it's predestined. It was God's predetermined plan to have 
Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, killed. That is why he was delivered up to be crucified. Jesus was not a loser. Jesus made it clear in John 10, 18, long before his death, he said, no one is able to take my, my life away from me. I lay it down willingly. When they came to arrest him, remember in John, he says he spoke and the whole crowd fell backwards. And then they got up and he said, whom do you seek? And he gave himself into their hands, you see. Peter took out the sword and tried to swipe the guy's head off. And he only got the ear. And Jesus said, put the sword away. I could appeal to the Father at any time and he would send legions of angels. He laid down his life willingly. He cooperated with the plan of God. There's a whole sermon in that, by the way. God has you going through something difficult. Are you ready by faith to cooperate with the plan of God? Or are you going to run from the will of God like Jonah ran to Tarshish? The elders of the Jews are the ones who delivered Jesus up to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who was the one that had the authority to kill somebody because they didn't have that authority. And it may have been Pilate that washed his hands and then delivered Jesus over to be crucified. But Peter, driven by the power of the Holy Spirit, understanding what really happened, he said, I'll tell you the main reason the Messiah died. I'll tell you the main reason that he was slaughtered. It's God predetermined it had to happen. What does that mean? That means the death of Messiah did not thwart God's plan. Rather, the death of Messiah fulfilled it. There was a plan put in place by God long ago, long ago. The book of Revelation tells us that the names of believers like you and me, believers in Jesus, were all written in a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it was written there before the world was even created, much less us being born. Now, how could that happen unless the Lamb was slain in God's mind before the world even began? Part of God's plan. Only possible if the Messiah was predetermined to enter down into a dark and a fallen and a doomed world and to save that world by laying down his life. When he laid down his life, why did God want that to happen? And the answer is because God wanted to display his love. His love. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. Special kind of love. Never seen it before. Never heard of that kind of a love. God wanted to show it. He sent his son to die in our place. Why? Because he loves us. You might be saying, I don't know that God loves me. Well, then you don't understand the gospel very well. Yeah, but I've had hard times in my life. Yes, but Jesus Christ shed his blood for you. Close your mouth. Open your heart. Quit making objections. God doesn't love me. He's forgotten me. I've done that, by the way. It doesn't work. God's love is so great. He loves you. He knows your circumstances. He knows everything about you. He had you in his mind and his heart when Christ went to Calvary and died for you. He already, he already is like that. You've got to believe that. You've got to understand that and believe that. God wanted to demonstrate his love for you. We must never doubt his love. We have no right to doubt God's love. But the whole creation, in one sense, anticipated and predicted the fall of man and the sin and the rescue of man by the Lamb of God. To take away our sins. Isn't that what John the Baptist said? Behold, the Lamb of God who what? takes away the sin of the world. Listen, there was no surprise with God when Jesus was killed. God had a salvation plan. 
And God embedded that plan in written history. In the Old Testament prophets, he told us what was going to happen and why. It was all there. By the way, when God has prophecy given, that has to be fulfilled. There's not a 99% chance that the prophecy will be fulfilled. There's a 100% chance that it's going to be fulfilled. It can't not be done because God is omnipotent and his word comes from him. And when he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. It's amazing, isn't it, really? Prophecy is amazing. This book here tells us how the world will become. And if we live long enough, <laughs> everything in the world in the news will conform to what it says, to the literal interpretation of prophecy. This is what Jesus was going to do because this is what God said had to happen. It was predetermined and foretold the death of Christ. There's no power in the universe that can stop what the Bible says from coming about. And how did God carry out the death of Jesus? You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. That's one of the saddest statements in all the Bible. The long-awaited Messiah. One day Messiah is going to come. Oh, we're still waiting for the Messiah to come. You'll see one day Messiah will come. And he was born in Bethlehem, and he healed their diseases, and they handed him over to godless, idol-worshiping, immoral, blasphemous men and said, kill him. The godless men is a reference to the Romans. They executed Jesus, but the Jews told them to do it. You turned God's Messiah over to lawless, godless men. They mocked him. They spat on him. They put a crown of thorns on him and had a good laugh. They scourged his back. They nailed him naked to a tree. That's what you did with him. Now, when you get to the end of this sermon, you'll see the Jews are going to say, what must we do? You want to know why they're reacting like that? It's because of the indictment Peter is giving here. How how do you sugarcoat something like this? This was not a seeker-friendly sermon. I mean, if you wanted to offend people and drive them away from the church in your first sermon, this would be pretty good, right? You murdered the Messiah. How many converts are you going to get out of that? You know, Pastor, we need to kind of relate to the people in our society now a little bit better, you know, because we can, if we relate to them, we can be like those churches where they just, everything's happy and wonderful in church and they got all this great stuff and it's entertaining and people feel good and they want to come back the next week. I'm glad you're here. That's obviously not the reason you're, you're not being entertained right now. So, God has a predetermined plan to kill the Messiah, but Peter blames the Jews for killing him. You know, the the seed of the entire debate between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God is right there in verse 23. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Are humans responsible? Yes. Is God sovereign over the decisions of human beings? Yes. Yeah, but I don't think those two things can go together. Well, they do. Well, I don't think that they can. It doesn't fit in my mind too bad. 
Well, okay, pastor, you're so smart. You tell us how those two things go together. I can't. Well, then it's not true. Yes, it is true. Well, you just lost your mind. No, no, I'm just following God's mind. And, and there's no elaboration given here. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Peter. You just said it was a predetermined plan of God. Then you said the Jews were guilty. Yes. Well, are you going to explain that to us? No. How do you expect us to believe it? Because it's true. No philosophical explanation. How could man be guilty of nailing Christ to the cross when God predetermined it was necessary? And, and, well, some will point to the word foreknowledge in verse 23 and say, well, God's predetermining was nothing more than him looking into the future and seeing what the Jews were going to do to his son. And then he made his plans after he looked to see what the Jews were going to do to his son. God simply looked into the future. That's what they think his foreknowledge means. And they saw what men would do. And then God made a plan out of all of it. Even if foreknowledge meant nothing more than God looking into the future to figure out what men are going to do, which it doesn't, doesn't mean that, it still wouldn't solve the tension. Because if God could look into the future and see what people are going to do, and he saw them do it, can they not not do it when it happens? How about that for a brain teaser? If God sees it happening, can it not not happen? How could God know something is going to happen and men still have a choice? Doesn't God's foreseeing things fix them? Everything God foresees must happen, and therefore it's predetermined. Foreknowledge leads to predestination. But the word foreknowledge does not mean foreseeing. Prognosis is actually the term in Greek. It means much more than looking into the future and seeing things. It means that someone is known, something or someone is known in advance, known in the selective sense, in the relational sense. Believers in Jesus are specifically said to be foreknown in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 and in Romans 8 and verse 29. If believers are foreknown, that would mean nothing if, if all it meant is God knew about them ahead of time because everybody's foreknown in that sense, right? God knows about everybody, believer or unbeliever. No, being foreknown means drawn into a relationship with God, known in the relational sense. Believers are foreknown. They're selected by God in advance in the same way Jesus was foreknown and his death was foreknown. Jesus was delivered up, notice, by the foreknowledge of God. There's an instrumental sense there. It shows the foreknowledge of God actually carried out the delivering up of Christ. That only makes sense if foreknowledge is another way of speaking about the plan of God, about the way it's designed. God made sure the death of Jesus happened. Who killed Jesus? Peter says the Romans did. But they only did that because the hateful Jews cried out, crucify, crucify. And the Jews acted according to the sovereign predetermined plan of God, according to his foreknowledge. So where does the guilt lie? Well, it never lies with God. No, Peter charges, you nailed him to the cross. The Jews were guilty. They are the ones who had Christ attested to him. You put him to death. Why would God do such a horrific thing to predestine that his chosen people would kill his chosen son? Why did God make sure the Jews cried out, crucify him, crucify him? Because there is no way that Pontius Pilate would have crucified Jesus if they had not persisted 
and persisted and persisted to have him face the death penalty. Why make sure it was the Roman soldiers who took him and had him die in the most miserable kind of way? Crucifixion. There's a lot of ways to die. That's the worst. Nailed to suffer publicly, to writhe in pain in front of everybody with no relief. Sometimes people would die there slowly over days. Christ hung for six hours. And then they thrust a spear in his side to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is dead. Why? Seven hundred years before Christ was born, the answer was given. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. and By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's why. That's why he insisted. He insists this happen. He demanded this happen. Christ said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And God said, it's not possible. It's not possible. So that you and I could populate his kingdom. So that you and I could be freed of our guilt. So that every last one of our immoral and indecent and blasphemous and ungrateful sins that we have, every last one of them could be paid for. Isn't that wonderful? That's why it had to happen. That's why it was predetermined. And so that we would be thankful and grateful, eternally grateful. And we would be the kind of people that live before God with no excuses. There's no excuses. When people don't love me, I know God loves me. I'm going to live for him. Things don't go well in life. doesn't matter. I've got heaven to look forward to in the kingdom of God. No excuses. There's no excuses. Christ laid down his life for me. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know, to live for him, to live sacrificially for him. I don't need any other motivation. That's it. And he wanted millions before him in gratitude, singing to his name, glorifying him, offering their life as servant. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He delivered us from slavery to sin. He took away the torrents of hell. He gave us sonship and inheritance because of the reconciliation, the redemption, the propitiation in his blood, as it says in Romans 3, through faith. You believe in Christ's death. You have incredible status. And that's why God determined he must go Father, as we come to the table of your son now, help us to have a renewed appreciation of the love that you have for us and the status we have in Christ because he has done the unthinkable for us. He has rescued us in the only way possible, giving his life, a righteous life for ours, a sinful life. Please help anyone in here that's trusting in their own goodness to run away from that and to trust only in Jesus Christ. Bless us as we come to fellowship in your presence with the Lord's Supper.